My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. Today we're going to talk about one of the most important passages for not only the Jewish people, but for the church. Portions of the text today are in courtrooms, classrooms, classic films, town squares, and even quoted by Jesus. These are, of course, the Ten Commandments. If you want to be fancy, you can call them the Decalogue. But when Jesus asked what was the most important commandment, he responded in Matthew 22 this way. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the God, thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In the handbook on the Pentateuch by Victor Hamilton, the author writes that in the first statement, Jesus reduces the first four commandments into one sentence. And in the second statement, he reduces the six last commandments into one sentence. Well, we'll be dividing the commandments in our discussion in the same fashion. The first four commandments have to do with the Israelites and our relationship to God. The following six commandments have to do with our relationship to one another. We'll be discussing the first four this week and the last six next week. Why was and is it important that God begin his dialogue with his chosen people with the Ten Commandments? For us, I think there's three key elements that we need to examine before we even begin to dissect the commandments themselves. First, the slaves had escaped Egypt by the mighty hand of God, and they needed a new identity. I remember my Old Testament professor 40 years ago telling us that the word Hebrew in Egyptian was apiru. And apiru translated politely to people of the land, or in a more degrading fashion, it meant dirty people. If you remember in Genesis, Joseph told his family to tell the Pharaoh that they were shepherds, and that the Pharaoh gave the uh, apiru, the people of the land, the land of Goshen. Uh, the Egyptians were clean-shaven and clean people, and the Hebrews were shepherds, and they were hairy people. You might even remember when Joseph was called out of prison to go see Pharaoh, it makes a point of telling us that he shaved before he went into the court of Pharaoh. Now, in Hebrew, the he word Hebrew can be translated to cross over or to pass through. And since the time of Abraham, his family were nomadic shepherds with no claim to a land of their own. So this new nation, fleeing their Egyptian oppressor, were travelers still. God had promised his chosen people a land of their own, and certainly they could not enter this new land and life with a collective identity as slaves, shepherds, or even dusty, dirty people. Through the Ten Commandments, God will begin to establish their identity as his chosen people. Secondly, these travelers needed to be different. They had lived in Egypt for over 400 years. In some ways, and I made this word up, they needed to be de-Egyptified. The customs, gods, and societal structure of the Egyptians were ingrained into the current DNA of these people. 
I have a friend, a pastor from Korea, who was a pastor of an Anglo United Methodist Church. And when I visited his home, he would often remark, America ends at my front gate. You are now in Korea. His home reflected Korean dress, customs, food, and language. This is the challenge that faces the people of God even today. The outside world infiltrates, infects, and influences the people of God. The Ten Commandments helps to establish and distinguish God's people from the nations around them. Thirdly, every nation needs boundaries. As a father, I work diligently to establish boundaries for the behavior of my children. In the Ten Commandments, God does the same for his children. These commandments will certainly distinguish the Israelites from the surrounding nations. One of my favorite Robert Frost quotes from The Mending Wall says, Good fences make good neighbors. These commandments will certainly make it clear to whom God is God and to whom God is not God. So, identity, customs, and boundaries are the three areas that we'll address in this study of the Ten Commandments. Primarily, the first four commandments deal with the religious identity of the Israelites, and the last six with customs and boundaries. Let's begin with the first four. I, I don't know about you, but I grew up with the King James. In fact, I had one of those little wooden rulers in fourth grade with the Ten Commandments on it. So for me, I still hear them in the King James. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness, or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the sea. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commands. Thou shalt not take the Lord of thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy maidservant, nor thy manservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gate. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Well, let's simmer these down to four working concepts. The first four commandments are these. One, no gods before me. Two, no idols. Three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And four, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. My high school English teacher would be thrilled with these because they fall very well into the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Who? I'm sorry, who do we worship? God and him alone. What do we worship, or rather, not worship? Any graven image, statue made by human hands. Where do we worship? Wherever God is. When do we worship? On the Sabbath. And how do we worship? 
by keeping the Sabbath and respecting the Lord's day and name and extending this day of worship and rest to all inhabitants, human and animal, in the midst of the Israelites. Here I'd like to take a brief detour, chase a rabbit, if you will. The Gallup organization is found in its regular poll investigating religious beliefs and practices that 85% of us believe that the Ten Commandments is still applicable today. However, the poll also determined that a half of that 85% can only name five or less. It's much like the young pastor who gave his church a survey to determine the needs and ministry of the church community. When the survey was returned, he was ecstatic. Fifty people had answered yes to the question, do we need a Wednesday night Bible study? The young pastor began diligently preparing for this huge crowd of Bible students that were going to attend his class. One of the older and wiser deacons took the young pastor aside and said, Pastor, you need to re-give the survey. Change that question from do we need to who will attend. The survey was changed and re-given, and only seven said yes to the new question. We in the churches today need to daily teach, study, absorb, apply, and live these foundational truths. The first commandment, one God, only one God, in the world of the emerging Israelites, well, they were surrounded by pantheistic nations. Pantheistic is a fancy word for lots of gods. In fact, my professor said that Egypt had over 1,500 gods. They had a God for everything, and God is establishing himself as the God of everything. Have you ever wondered why God would have given this commandment in the first place? Is God insecure? Is God like some jealous teenager who would go crazy at seeing his girlfriend with another fellow? Of course not. The God of love whom we have come to know in Jesus Christ gave this command for our sakes. Well, this moves us squarely into the second commandment, no idols. And I love the prophet's description of idols in Isaiah 44. Here's what he writes. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they shall, as their own witnesses, they did not see, not know, that they may be ashamed. Who formed a god or a molten graven image that is profitable for nothing? He goes on to say that we take a a log... We cut it in half. Out of one half, we make a graven image, and the other half, we cook our dinner. How can that be a God? For us and for the early Israelites, many things can become replacements for God in our lives. Work, school, play, family, even church can pull us away from the required core relationship with the one true God. You may be familiar with Woody Allen's acclaimed film, Hannah and Her Sisters. Near the end of the movie, Woody was asked by one of the sisters why he had been out of touch recently. And this is what he says. One day, he says, about a month ago, I really hit bottom. You know, I just felt that in a godless universe, who wants to go on living? 
Now, I happened to own a rifle, which I loaded, and believe it or not, I pressed it to my forehead. And I remember thinking that I was going to kill myself. And then I thought, what if I'm wrong? What if there really is a God? I mean, nobody really knows that. Then I thought, no, maybe is not enough. I want certainty or nothing. Woody sat there, frozen gun to his head, debating whether or not to shoot. And suddenly the gun went off. He had been so tense that his finger squeezed the trigger. But he was perspiring so much that the gun barrel slipped off his forehead and he blew a hole in the ceiling. Now I confess that I do not think of Woody Allen as a significant theologian. But if there is any modern statement that explains why people would make idols, even dumb ones, Woody's is as good as any. In an uncertain world, where jobs always hang by a thread, a world where the stock market makes wild roller coasters seem tame, a world where political moorings come loose amid Washington scandals, we crave certainty. We need to feel confidence in something or else we go bonkers and start looking for rifles. To be sure, having a good idol around can fill that bill. Back in the ancient world, That was a God with which people could deal, a God that they could see and touch. If the crops begin to dry up, look for the rain. The people would come to the idol and, and make a prayer. If the enemy were laying siege to the town, they could come to the idol and call for deliverance. Of course, those early theologians knew that the statue could not answer prayers. But it was comforting to have something visible and touchable, something reassuring in the midst of difficulty. Something more than Woody Allen's, maybe, to represent what they were convinced was larger reality. Mr. Idol, they would pray. Mr. Bale, Mr. Moloch, if you do this for me, I will do this for you. Do you want me to dance? I'll dance. Do you want me to cut myself with a knife? Okay. Martha, bring me a knife. Do you want me to slash the throat of my firstborn? Well, if that's what it takes to make things right. What had begun in one generation as a representation of something in the minds of succeeding generations would become holy. This was the kind of world that this ragtag band of former Egyptian slaves would come to form a new nation. And it was the religion of this kind of world in which Israel's God, the God of all universe, wanted to protect the chosen people. Enter the Ten Commandments. And in commandment number two, God instructs, warns, and commands, do not be like the people around you. You are mine, and I am yours. For our discussion, commandment number three, respect God's name, might be both the easiest and the most difficult commandment. I recently worked with a counseling patient whose family had a poor reputation in his hometown. And he felt that because his name was the same as that of his family, that he was being judged, and judged poorly. He spent significant effort and personal expense to distinguish himself from his family members. So too, we who are God's people need to live lives that demonstrate our love for, devotion to, and daily words and behaviors that bring glory to and do not detract from God's name. Attending church for one hour a week and then living like the rest of the world 
is not only a poor witness, but it also makes the church weaker through behavioral hypocrisy. Nike told us, just do it. Here, God tells us, don't do it. As my grandmother would say, easy peasy. Commandment four is when the Sabbath, here we rest. Relax, refocus, refresh, recreate and reconnect with God, the family, and the congregation. Do you remember when the world shut down on Sunday? No stores, no movies, no restaurants, no schools, no libraries, anything except the church. Our Sabbath was enforced whether we respected it or not. Even today, there's towns and communities that have what are called blue laws that restrict businesses on Sunday. And these blue laws attempt to legislate reverence for the Lord's day. Well, this was unsuccessful in trying to force Christianity on everyone. In fact, the famous English author John Ruskin wrote that Monday for him was the happiest day of the week. Because that meant that there were six days until the dreaded, miserable Sunday. Now, I know how he's felt. As a boy, I was told repeatedly that there were certain things that were to be done or not done on Sunday. However, the Sabbath, although a commandment, is really a demonstration of an obedient heart. Psychologists and sociologists tell us that rest, taking a break from every day, is important for our mental, social, spiritual, and spiritual health. However, the real question we should ask is this. Do we really take a Sabbath or the follow-up? If not, why not? For Christians, by tradition, Sunday is our little oasis, our place apart in the noisy din of a hectic week. We make the day, what will make the day holy for you? Worship, prayer, praise, study. Can't go wrong there. Family, terrific. Recreation, fine. The point is that it's up to you. Rejoice that Jesus taught that one day in seven was made for you and not you for that day. However, it's not just a day off, but it's important that what we do with the day off. Here's where I'd like to leave off for today. What Zig Ziglar used to call a checkup from the neck up. Clearly, God commanded four areas of our worship and focus of our faith. We are monotheistic. We believe in only one God. We are completely aware that there is no man-made representation of our God that would do him justice. We are called to be people whose lives match their words and whose words match their faith. Finally, we are called to rest. Give yourself a grade for each of these individually or as a group. I'm sorry to admit that in my own life as your pastor, I am often lacking. I get caught up in the ministry of the urgent and I miss the important. I'm reminded of the often used phrase, you may be the only Bible people read. However, I think we amend that statement to your life, your work, your words, and your rest are the only Bible people read. Amen.